Welcome to the University of New South Wales, Canberra, Australian Naval History video and podcast series, produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thank you for joining us. For more information on this series, please visit the UNSW Canberra Naval Studies Group website. To find us, simply Google Navy Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. We hope you enjoy this podcast and return for others in the series. I'm Greg Swindon, Senior Naval Historical Officer at the Sea Power Centre Australia. The Battle of Savo Island in the Solomon Islands Group in the early hours of 9 August 1942 was the worst defeat at sea for the United States Navy, losing the heavy cruisers Astoria, Quincy and Vincennes. And it also resulted in the Royal Australian Navy's largest warship loss, the heavy cruiser HMS Canberra. In this episode, our expert panel will discuss the battle and its aftermath. Joining me today to discuss the battle are Dr Greg Gilbert, a visiting fellow in the Naval Studies Group, Vice Admiral Peter Jones, also from the Naval Studies Group. His book, Australia's Argonauts, in part discusses this battle. And Dr Catherine Sperling, whose book, HMAS Canberra, Casualty of Circumstances, also discusses the battle. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Greg, uh, can you describe the strategic situation that was occurring in the Pacific at this time and what led up to the battle uh, at Guadalcanal? Right. The uh, Pacific War started with the Japanese offensive, which uh, took over much of uh, Southeast Asia and uh, the South Pacific. The Japanese captured Rabaul in January 1942, uh, and they captured Tulagi in the southern Solomons during the Battle of the Coral Sea in May. Following the Battle of Midway in uh, June 1942, the Pacific War became a war of attrition, with both sides, now evenly matched, were struggling to gain sea supremacy. Japanese developed a seaplane base at Tulagi and started to construct an airfield on Guadalcanal. Their strategic aim was to cut the sea communications between the United States and Australia. They planned to isolate, not invade Australia. The Americans planned to launch the first Allied offensive of the Pacific War in the, uh, in the first week of August 1942. An overwhelming amphibious expeditionary force was to capture the Southern Solomons, which included the airfield on Guadalcanal and the seaplane base at Tulagi. US intelligence estimated that there were about 8,500 Japanese troops in the Guadalcanal area. They planned to attack with approximately double that uh, size in land troops. The Australian Coast Watchers, however, provided estimates that there were about 4,000 Japanese on Guadalcanal. In fact, there were only about 3,500 Japanese, mostly construction, aviation and base troops, and just 700 Japanese Marines, so very few fighting troops uh, defending the place. Peter, with this, uh, this battle which became key in the, in the Pacific, who were the, who were the leaders on both sides? On the Allied side, you had Rear Admiral uh, Frank Blackjack Fletcher. He was in command of a, uh, a, a 
a carrier task force. In fact, there were three carrier task force brought together. Saratoga, in which uh, he was um, uh, on board, also had WASP and Enterprise. Each of those carriers also had a, an admiral who would uh, individually command their task force. But as I said, that was brought together. So he was in charge of escorting the amphibious force. The amphibious force was uh, commanded by Rear Admiral Kelly Turner. The, the, uh, the Marine Force of the 1st Division, they were uh, commanded by uh, Major General Archie Vandegrift. Um, and the uh, close-in cruiser destroyer force that would uh, uh, protect that amphibious force on the landing and um, and uh, during the, those initial operations was commanded by Rear Admiral Victor Crutchley. Royal Naval Officer just came in to replace uh, Rear Admiral Jack Crace, who had commanded the, the Australian-American Cruiser Squadron during the Battle of the Coral Sea. Um, and so Victor Crutchley had come in not long before um, this uh, operation. Now you've uh, mentioned uh, Blackjack Fletcher there. So how was he going to employ his carriers? You know, what, was the, what was the plan? So um, his uh, plan was that uh, he would... Um, he viewed this operation more as a raid, um, which wasn't uh, consistent, I believe, with what uh, Admiral Ernie King, um, the Commander-in-Chief of the US uh, Fleet, had uh, viewed this operation. King really saw, and Nimitz really saw this as a, as a major operation to prevent further Japanese um, advance in, in the Southwest Pacific. But uh, Flitcher saw this as a raid and he had told Vandegrift and, uh, and Turner that uh, he would um, take the carriers away from the area of operation after 48 hours after uh, lodgement. Um, that was clearly a significant issue. Um, the other person I haven't talked about was on the Japanese side was uh, Vice Admiral uh, Ganuchi Mikawa and he was the uh, commander of the Japanese 8th Fleet um, and that was uh, his land headquarters was and he had a command ship that was based at Rabaul um, and he had a cruiser force which was um, uh, nearby in uh, Kavian. Just a, a side question, do you think Fletcher was concerned obviously about the carriers following the loss of carriers at Coral Sea and, and Midway? I think that is very true. He's, uh, he had three precious carriers um, and, uh, and so he really saw them as strategic assets, which indeed they were, and he was very conscious not to put them at undue risk. Um, and so in his mind it was really a balance of being able to support this operation but not to risk the carriers. But it, it created tension, certainly between Vandegrift and Turner and um, uh, and uh, Fletcher. The other important point, of course, was uh, Crutchley was not at that meeting. Um, and you can imagine Crutchley coming from the Royal Navy where in the war to date they had lost a significant number of ships in support of the land forces in Dunkirk, uh, Crete and, uh, and Greece. Uh, this um, uh, uh, perspective from Fletcher would have been an anathema to, to Crutchley. Okay. Catherine, 
Um, did the Allies have a good understanding of what they're up against, of it, you know, how good the Japanese really were or could be? No, unfortunately they had a complacency, a cultural complacency, <coughs> where they believed their forces were far superior and the Japanese forces were far inferior. As Greg mentioned, uh, the Japanese had overtaken, had overpowered the Australian forces in Rabaul and Kaviang in a matter of an hour. The Japanese had been building up military uh, fortifications on Pacific Islands for many years. And they didn't learn their lessons. It's unfortunate that they failed to appreciate just how good the Japanese forces were. And this led to completely um, underestimation of their, of their abilities. And they certainly didn't expect that they were capable of a night attack um, by ships. They dismissed that entirely. Okay. Peter, the, the Allies had recently fought together at uh, the Battle of the Coral Sea. You know, Australian ships were involved with the, with the US Navy. Uh, had they learned any lessons from there or were they still in a learning phase, do you think? I think um, interoperability, as we would call it, between the two navies was very much a work in progress. So um, in the Battle of the Coral Sea, that um, in that cruiser destroyer force uh, that uh, at that point uh, Admiral Crace had commanded, they had produced an operating guide for how the, the, the uh, two navies would operate together. They had uh, exchanged signal uh, uh, signalmen, sailors, uh, to operate on the uh, on the flag bridges of the of the ships um, on the, of different navies to help that, um, but uh, there was quite some important uh, impediments to a smooth interoperability between the, the navies. So a couple of issues here. Um, at that time, the primary means of of coordinating ships at sea was by flags and uh, by a flashing light. The Americans were introducing line-of-sight radio communications and they had a set called uh, Talk Between Ships or TBS. Um, that was still being introduced within the US Navy. So for example, USS Chicago, part of, the, uh, of that Allied force, she didn't have TBS. So some ships had it, others didn't. Um, the way that the ships were and squadrons were commanded were, was uh, different. Um, culturally, there were differences. The Australians uh, had pretty much embraced the Royal Navy model of um, acceptance of a lot of delegation, people using their initiative. Um, in the US Navy, um, it, it was more directed control. There was more a, a, a cruiser captain would expect more detailed um, instructions um, to be given by the uh, by the, the the squadron commander. Also, staffs were different. Um, uh, Crutchley only had a, a, a staff of three. He relied he, as uh, the captain of the cruiser in, in which he operated. He was his flag captain. Um, the U.S. counterparts at that point had about a dozen in their staff. That was an important thing because what it meant was that uh, uh, Crutchley didn't have the staff to a to provide more detailed orders, uh, and also he didn't have a staff dedicated to looking at the longer range picture in in an operation. That, um, as we will talk later, that that changed. So there were some um, 
significant differences. The other important thing is just in terms of technology. Uh, this was the early days of radar in ships. So some ships like HMRS Canberra had an early version of a radar. Some of the destroyers had radar, but a lot of the ships didn't. Um, what that also meant was that the, the admirals um, may not have been really exposed to the capabilities and the limitations of radar and Crutchley was very much in that boat. Um, and so once again that also played about how the ships were operated together. Um, Crutchley also provided a, uh, a more detailed instruction on how the ships would operate in, in his formation during this operation. Um, but uh, some of those uh, uh, newly joined cruisers in, in that Vincennes group, um, he had not met the, the commanding officers. So there was part of his task group he'd actually not met and hadn't been able to impress upon them how he would like the, um, the ships to operate. The other final point there was the instructions were really more about how the RAN uh, operated and not so much about how um, US Navy procedures could be incorporated in how the task group operated. So for the majority of the task group being US, some of these procedures were quite alien. So as you say, still very much a work in progress. Very much so. Yeah. Um, Catherine, at uh, Guadalcanal at the Battle of Savo Island, there were three Australian ships, uh, Australia and Hobart had, had seen significant service, but then there was Canberra. And how really battle-worthy was she for the fight that was to come? Uh, not at all, unfortunately. Uh, Canberra, before the war, had been used mainly as a glamour ship for a lot of ceremonial activities. It had been primarily on the East Coast. Uh, there was a greater accent on appearance than uh, operational capability. So you've got uh, elaborate woodwork within the ship. You've got paint being coated over and over again, and these were two eventually that found to be ter have terrible consequences for the crew. You've also got it being used as a training ship, which meant there was an enormous number of young, newly graduated officers and uh, sailors coming in, and there was very little cohesion. Add to that, you've got the fact that when the war began, the authorities were caught a little unawares or not quite prepared because Australia had been modernised. It had been given refits and modernised. And it, its hull had been uh, thickened. It had had uh, a lot of these uh, items fireproofed. It had co uh, updated combat systems. It, it was a, a much more modern ship. But Canberra unfortunately missed those refits because it was sent immediately into, tra into transport escorts. So Canberra really wasn't prepared. It was most unfortunate. So Greg, um, it's now the morning of the 7th of August and the, the Allies have landed at Guadalcanal. Uh, can you describe what's going on? Right, it was a strategic surprise, straight away. Uh, the Allied fleet of 54 warships and 23 transports which had about 40,000 sailors and 17,000 marines on board, arrived without any warning off the coast of Guadalcanal. At 6.20, the Allied cruisers commenced the shore bombardment of the Japanese positions, 
and carrier aircraft quickly destroyed all the 15 Japanese seaplanes that were near Tulagi. Carrier aircraft also bombed and strafed Japanese positions ashore. Uh, elements of the US 1st Marine Division landed on Guadalcanal at about 19, largely unopposed. By 1600, the same day, Japanese defenders, sorry, the next day, Japanese defenders had withdrawn to the north of the island and the US Marines had overrun the Japanese airfield at Lunga Point. This was the airfield that was to be called uh, Henderson Field by the Americans. Famous. The uh, first Marines landed at Tulagi at about 8 o'clock in the morning on the 7th. Japanese resistance was strong there. They, uh, that night, the troops ashore experienced the first of many Japanese suicide charges, and the island was not cleared until the next morning. Landings on the neighbouring islands of Gavutu and Tanambongo did not commence until about 12 noon. By then, the Japanese garrison was on high alert and well dug in. They fought stubbornly, yard by yard, until the night of the 8th of August. US Marines suffered high casualties in capturing these Tulagi side islands, as opposed to Guadalcanal, which very few casualties. By 9th of August, over 11,000 troops were ashore on Guadalcanal and a further 6,000 in the Tulagi area. However, the heavy equipment and the supplies had not been landed. There was a major delay with that. Peter, so obviously the, the landing's taken place. What's the Japanese reaction? So, as, um, as Greg said, the um, surprise had been achieved and certainly the, the initial response in Tulagi was um, that there was a, a slow response to, to the invasion and that's according to um, coast watchers on the, on the ridge looking down at that. But um, more particularly, Admiral Makawa in, um, uh, in Rabaul, his response was really three things. First off, by happenstance, he had uh, some shore-based aircraft about to be launched for a strike against um, uh, the Australian forces in Milne Bay. He redirected that, uh, those aircraft to attack the, the amphibious forces at uh, Tulagi and Guadalcanal. Um, and what we see there was, as that, that, that strike went uh, south, uh, we, we saw the benefit of the Coast Watchers in terms of they were able to uh, report the aircraft coming down and they were able to give um, nearly an hour's notice to, to, the, uh, to the forces of, uh, of Crutchley and Turner. These aircraft and successive Coast Watchers could report the raid coming down. So that enabled um, both ships to be prepared and also it, it allowed um, carrier-based aircraft to be launched to be at altitude ready to attack the, the Japanese um, um, aircraft. And, and during this, uh, this campaign, or during this initial part of the campaign, the, um, the, the Japanese aircraft's uh, effectiveness was really nullified by that early warning that um, the Allies were able to glean from the Coast Watchers. Um, the other thing that Cow um, did was he got a detachment of, uh, of uh, Marines in a, in a um, tr in troop ship to come down to augment the Japanese garrison. Um, that ship was actually sunk by a, uh, an American submarine. 
Finally, he, uh, he took the, the ships of the 6th Cruiser Division um, and uh, he, he embarked in the Chokai, the flagship of that division, um, and so there was uh, five heavy cruisers, a light cruiser and a destroyer, um, and he headed south. He had got approval from Admiral Nagumo, the uh, head of the, the uh, Japanese Navy in, um, in Japan, to uh, approval to conduct a night surface attack on the uh, on the the escorting force and the and the um, amphibious force, and that headed down at, at some speed from uh, the Rabaul area, and so they started that um, that's quite a fast passage down to attack and coincide with a, a night engagement. Yeah, Greg, we've heard the, the Coast Watchers mentioned and obviously they're providing a, a great deal of information which is useful to the Allies. But what are the, what are the other surveillance activities that uh, the Allies are employing in this campaign? Right. The, uh, overall, the Allied intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance effort was pretty appalling. This is, this is actually a classic example of failure uh, for those who study intelligence in the Second World War. Uh, it's actually a case where the heroic actions of individuals were swamped by the incompetence and the poor management of a system which really never worked. Right. Now, uh, the first problem with the ISR system was there was a split between the two Allied theatre commands, between the South West Pacific Area and the South Pacific Area commands. The Southwest Pacific area was responsible for all the effort in the Northern Solomons under MacArthur, uh, while the Southern Solomons were under Gormley's South Pacific Command. The Southwest Pacific participants were not aware of the impending Guadalcanal operation. They weren't warned about it, they were not told to look out for Japanese ships, uh, particularly, uh, and they thought they'd better not tell anyone because of security reasons. This actually had uh, negative consequences. Mikawa's uh, cruiser force, as uh, Peter said, was observed, uh, moved from Rabaul early on the uh, 7th, uh, 8th of, sorry, the 8th of August. Uh, it was observed a number of times as it headed towards Guadalcanal. For instance, at 10.25 on 8th of August, uh, RAAF Hudson aircraft reported seeing three cruisers, three destroyers and two seaplane tenders or gunboats in the, southern, uh, in the Solomon Islands north of Bougainville. This contact was reported immediately but not picked up by the aircraft's base at Milne Bay. It was heard by the Japanese in Makawa squadron though. The aircraft reported the contact again immediately after landing. Uh, there, as some American historians have suggested, there were no cups of teas involved <laughs> and no long delays. Uh, but after reporting it, it was not picked up uh, by the intelligence staff because it was considered low priority. It was low priority because they weren't aware of the operations happening at Guadalcanal. The report uh, was not received by Turner or Crutchley in the operational area until after dark that evening. This was just hours before the Battle of Savo Island. 
Both commanders also accepted the false intelligence assessment that Japanese ships were establishing a seaplane base in the central Solomons. Now, South Pacific Command was responsible for the ISR in the southern Solomons. Land-based aircraft under Admiral, uh, US Admiral McCain, based in Espirito Santo, conducted air searches with Catalina and B-17 aircraft throughout the Solomon Islands. These uh, aircraft flew a dawn search pattern, reaching their furthest extent about 12.15 uh, during the day, and hence they missed Makawa's afternoon approach. Admiral Fletcher, on the carriers, had planned to supplement McCain's air search plan when and as required. Unfortunately, McCain's headquarters did not inform the other commands within SOPAC, uh, and the searches that he undertook were incomplete. Uh, McCain's headquarters told everyone this about 11.30 that night, which again was far too late for anyone to do anything about it. Uh, Fletcher was unable to conduct any supplementary searches at night with his carrier aircraft. 14 searches were flown by the carrier aircraft on the afternoon of the 8th of August. However, they were looking for the Japanese carriers. They did not fly over the slot, which was the obvious path, uh, path of Makawa's approach. Just one other thing, and that's that Crutchley himself had quite a few seaplanes on board his cruisers, uh, but these were not used for reconnaissance purposes. They were really a wasted capability. Crutchley and his staff did not expect a Japanese surface attack and they were totally unaware of the Japanese preference for, or the expertise in, night fighting. So they had the assets, but they just didn't have the coordination. The system just was a failure. Intelligence failure. Okay. Peter, it's, it's now the, uh, the evening of the 8th. The, uh, the Marines are ashore. Um, What's Crutchley's force doing at this stage? So his disposition was uh, uh, pretty sound in, in, in its uh, general thinking. Um, if you can imagine the, the area you have uh, Guadalcanal to the south, to the northeast of Guadalcanal is the island of Tulagi, and in between, uh, to, just to the northwest, is the island of Savo Island. So really in protecting the two amphibious Forces, one off Tulagi, one off Guadalcanal. There were really three approaches that uh, the Japanese could potentially make from uh, by sea. Really coming in to two channels either side of Savo Island, and there was also one to the east between um, Tulagi and uh, Guadalcanal. So he split his cruiser force into three. Um, his, if you like, his core group, which was Chicago and, uh, and Australia and Canberra, ships which had operated together uh, for some time, since um, uh, for some months. Um, they were, to, if you like, going to protect the, the approach west of Savo. And they had one destroyer, radar equipped destroyer, um, further out to sea as a, uh, as a, as a picket. Um, and then you, you had another, the other cruiser group, the, the, the new, um, American cruisers that he had, um, had joined for the operation under the commanding officer of Sens in, in command of that group, 
they were operating, operating to the east of Savo Island. And then you had the two light cruisers, Hobart and San Juan, under the command of Admiral Scott, US Navy, uh, patrolling the eastern approaches, which is probably the, the least likely area. Um, and, uh, and also you had an, another destroyer um, operating as a radar picket to the, um, uh, in support of that Vincennes group. Um, so that was the, the disposition. Um, challenge there is uh, two things. One, one was that you had individual uh, destroyers providing that radar picket. They, um, this, as I said earlier, early days in radar, people didn't fully understand the capabilities and the limitations. Um, the, the destroyer would have a blind arc um, in its search. Also, as it does a, uh, as a, a, a patrol loop, when it turned around, it, there would be a, a, a blind arc as well. So it wasn't a complete radar picture is what I'm saying. And also it was uh, relatively close in. Um, and even if there was a detection, there was a reasonably short amount of time uh, to react. And so his disposition sort of made sense, but uh, provided you had adequate warning and following on from Greg's point is because there was um, flaws in that aerial surveillance um, that really um, um, played to the weaknesses of this disposition. Um, and really, my, my sort of thinking here is that if he had a adequate staff that was able to bring together and look at what were the surveillance reports and all that sort of thing, they would have been able to highlight to Crutchley that, hey, we haven't had a report you know, for some time and it really would have emphasised the need to use his organic seaplanes that he had in the task group. He had a couple being used for anti-submarine sweeps, but he, he had four aircraft that he could have used for some surveillance, and that would have been incredibly useful for him to have done a sweep before the end of the day to, um, to um, just to assure him that there was nothing untoward. The, the other point is this issue about how good the Japanese were at night fighting. There was some knowledge by the Allies that the, the Japanese were actually very good at night fighting. Um, a lot of that knowledge, though, had been lost in the, uh, the campaign in uh, Dutch um, East Indies because ships had sunk and the, and the crews hadn't been alive to tell the tale. Hobart actually did know the, the, the night fighting capabilities, of course, because she was a survivor of that operation. But that information wasn't widely understood and Crutchley newly joined into the Pacific Theatre really was, he didn't appreciate it. And interesting enough, in, the, in, the, in his task group, you look at the night orders of some of the commanding officers. Some had told their, their officers that, and their crew that there may be a night engagement tonight and others were you know, completely not alive to that threat. Greg, um, that evening, Admiral Crutchley um, leaves the task group in order to go to a meeting with uh, Turner and Vandegrift. Now, uh, why did this occur? Right. Um, at 10.35 uh, that night, Crutchley received a message from Turner saying, come on board uh, his flagship, which was the USS Macaulay, uh, to discuss the withdrawal of Fletcher's carriers. This was going to leave the whole amphibious group, including the cruiser support force, uh, without air cover the next morning. 
Uh, in fact, Fletcher had already decided and had already left. Uh, now, 20 minutes later, HMAS Australia left the patrol near Savo Island and Crutchley ordered uh, Bode in the USS Chicago to take charge using a flashing light as they passed. Uh, Australia proceeded at speed to the Macaulay, which was about 12 miles away in the anchorage near Lunga Point on Guadalcanal. The distance was too far for Crutchley to travel at night by the Admiral's barge, uh, and although he could have transferred to a US destroyer, he preferred to make the journey in the Australia. He left the Canberra and the Chicago with the destroyers Patterson and Bagley uh, on night patrol south of Savo Island. The meeting was delayed and did not finish until after midnight. Crutchley did not get back on board Australia until about 1.15. He decided it was too late to rejoin the night patrol and that Australia would wait near the Guadalcanal transports until dawn uh, when they would join the screening positions that uh, were normally conducted in the morning. Now, Admiral Crutchley during the meeting was noted to be tired uh, and this was due to the lack of sleep over several days and it was starting to catch up to him. So Catherine, Macawa's force has come south. It's, it has been, has been detected but not reported. What happens? Well, if I can digress for a moment, the, the whole operation was really destined to fail, the sea operation. They hadn't had time to properly rehearse there was a lack of communication. These brave men, as uh, Greg has mentioned, the, the intelligence came from the Coast Watchers. It came from the RAAF crew. I don't believe Crutchley was suited for the position he was given. I think there was just lack of... Uh, he was a VC winner in World War I, but he'd had no experience with the Americans. The, uh, this was actually the first American amphibious attack since 1898. So it needed more time, but I guess that's war. And so when the, uh, the ships were left just waiting for an attack because they weren't at first degree readiness, the captain on the HMAS Canberra, there was uh, the captain and the senior officers were all asleep or retired. There was a junior officer on board. It was just... Uh, a carnage waiting to happen, unfortunately, because the, they came through the, the Japanese came through the slot. They were actually missed by the, uh, the radar ship, as Peter has mentioned. They even had to slow down so they'd avoid an, an American destroyer because, and, and waited till it finished its patrol, which it did within a kilometer and just went on its way. And then they proceeded. It was, it was just, um, for the Japanese point of view, it was a copybook attack. And Canberra just was not prepared. So, when did the first sort of you know Japanese shells start landing? The time-wise, uh, it was before midnight, and so they didn't even get off a shot because this is Canberra. Didn't this they? is HMAS Canberra because it was first in line, so it was the first attacked. Had Chicago been in front of HMAS Canberra, you may have had a completely different situation, but it wasn't. So uh, it, it was just carnage, basically. It was, uh, they, as I said, they didn't get a shot away. Yeah. Peter, you've got something to add. 
Yes, so um, Macau's uh, approach was very much, uh, he was conscious with night attacks that you had to uh, have a, uh, a more simplified plan. So he had his ships in, in uh, one, one astern of the other um, and um, he had launched his carrier, uh, his um, cruiser seaplanes um, uh, towards sunset and in fact they, for some of them it was their first night time sortie. So he used his aircraft in an imaginative way, um, sent them out to get the disposition of, of the Allied forces. Um, and indeed, uh, one of the um, American aviators on Guadalcanal heard the distinctive um, engine noise of the Japanese seaplanes. And he said to his compatriot as they were walking along the beach, that's Japanese cruiser seaplanes, and we're the Japanese cruiser seaplanes, there are Japanese cruisers. Um, the import of that that um, of, of that sortie wasn't appreciated by the cruiser force, and in, indeed, um, uh, Farncombe, the commanding officer of uh, HMAS Australia, he thought they were doing surveillance for a, a potential um, 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 air attack the, you know, the next day. So he didn't quite appreciate what was going on. But uh, as Catherine said, the, the, the Japanese cruisers came through. It is sweep round the the uh, the Canberra group torpedo and gun attack, then swept round to uh, to the east and then to the northeast, and then uh, then attacked in turn the the um, the, the Vincennes group uh, to to great effect. And of course, even those uh, the destroyer and the um, and the light cruiser, um, they all had the, the long lance torpedo, the twenty four inch. Um, uh, torpedo which was lethal particularly at such a short range they had such high explosive power so that was uh, that was the, um, the the action from Macau's viewpoint right. Greg what was um, Crushley's response to the attack right uh, was, was there a response uh, he responded by doing nothing if you like uh, Crutchley and the crew of Australia had actually seen the action from a distance uh, in the south and in the north of Savo Island, but they had no reports given to them and uh, they just waited to see what was happening, what would unfold as it were. Now Crutchley probably assumed that his night dispositions were capable of resisting anything that the Japanese could throw at them uh, according to their intelligence. Uh, the five Allied heavy cruisers and four destroyers were really more than a match for the worst-case intelligence scenario of three Japanese cruisers and three destroyers. So it would seem. Uh, Crutchley moved Australia to a screening position that was seven miles west of Guadalcanal transports and ordered the US destroyers to concentrate on his position. Now, unfortunately, this broke down with uh, the message breakdown with the ciphers being misinterpreted by the US destroyers, and they ended up uh, at a position northwest of Savo Island itself, quite some distance away from where the uh, Australia was. Crutchley requested more information from the ships under his command. Uh, generally, though, his, uh, the situation remained unclear. Uh, the light cruisers near uh, Tulagi reported back saying that they weren't actually engaged, but all the heavy cruisers had basically been destroyed or were in uh, major damage mode at that time in the uh, Bay Savo Island, so they couldn't report back effectively. 
at 3.10 in the morning, Crutchley reported to Turner that there had been a surface action off Savo Island. That's all he could say. Uh, the full extent of the disaster would not be clear until the morning. So, Peter, it appears that uh, Macau has uh, won a great battle there, uh, but then he doesn't uh, choose to engage the transports, which I thought was his main target. Yes, that's right. So, we, fortunately, we know from Admiral Macau himself what his reasoning here was. So, he, he was um, one of the few um, Japanese admirals to survive the war. Um, he was interviewed by the US Navy after the war, uh, and in particular about this point. Um, he uh, was. He decided not to continue on towards the amphibious transports because he uh, believed that the uh, the Americans would respond with a, a uh, an air launched attack from the carriers on his cruiser force, um, and uh, he was concerned about in the morning as they made their escape back to Rabaul that they would be attacked. So he didn't want to go further south. To um, to attack the uh, the transports and and then uh, risk his his force. Um, he was also concerned about the, the the disposition of his his cruiser force after these two engagements, if you like, and the two different cruiser forces. That they had to be reassembled, if you like, to be able to go south anyway. So he made that decision. Uh, he had to make that decision in a in a very short time as well. Um, and, uh, and of course, with the benefit of hindsight, many people in the Japanese Navy had said this was a you know a, a great opportunity missed, um, but you know he had achieved um, a tremendous victory as it as it was, and uh, and one of his cruisers was in fact sunk by an American submarine on on its um, uh, just as it was uh, returning back to base. So that that was his his reasoning. Okay. So Catherine. Uh Canberra's been hit quite badly. Uh, she's out, out of action. What's happening on board the ship at this point in time? It's unfortunately chaos. Uh, the bridge was hit. Uh, the captain, Captain Getting, arrived. So did the gunnery officer, the torpedo officer. They all came on to the bridge. Unfortunately, one of the first direct hits was on the bridge. And, and the gunnery officer was killed. So. Uh, Getting was uh, mortally wounded and he would die later. So there was just no time to do anything. And there were four, believed to be four torpedoes hit the ship as well, which meant they also hit the, um, they hit the boiler rooms, which meant the ship was dead in the water. So you had no command, you had no, no power. And the, another direct hit went on to the damage headquarters, the people who were most qualified to, to fix the ship. Below decks it was the fire, all the flammable material had burst into flames. You had 17, 18 year olds trying to cope. Uh, one actually, I was told by one survivor that the four inch gun crew just disappeared, one of the four inch gun crews. It was just, there was no time to do anything and it was horrific for these young people. There was uh, one survivor, Henry Hall, who was an able seaman, and unfortunately he died this, this year, early this year, and the Navy rightfully gave him a fantastic send-off. He came down onto deck and he found wounded everywhere. 
in the most appalling wounds. He'd, he was 18, he had no idea what to do, so he asked the medical people if they could help, what he could do, and he, they said, just give these men morphine shots. So he did, and he was told to mark their forehead with an M to say that they'd receive a morphine shot. And he said he used blood, there was plenty of it. So the ship was completely disabled, the crew was, there was something like uh, 65 missing and another nine uh, more died later. 75, I think. Was it 75? Peter might remember that better than I. No, I couldn't tell you, sorry. <laughs> okay, I think there were 75, by the end of the uh, campaign, there were 75 uh, missing or dead from Australia and another nine died. 109 were injured. So it was, it was a terrible catastrophe for the Australian ship. She had no chance at all whatsoever to survive. Greg, there's some, uh, I won't say rumour, but there's been some investigation to suggest that uh, there may have been a blue on blue and that the USS Bagley had accidentally torpedoed um, Canberra during that night action. Do you care to comment? Yes, uh, Catherine mentioned the torpedoes. Uh, although it was denied by the Australian Inquiry uh, after the events, uh, and later American investigations also denied it. Uh, the evidence suggests that uh, HMAS Canberra was hit on the starboard side of midships between uh, number one and number two boiler rooms by a torpedo. Uh, the damage was catastrophic, leading to the sudden loss of power and control throughout the ship. Uh, such damage could only have resulted from a hit by a torpedo and not from naval gunfire, as was some have suggested. Um, shells passing through the port side to the starboard side could not have caused such extensive damage. Uh, and in fact, uh, both watch key all the watchkeepers in both boiler rooms uh, were died instantaneously. Uh, although the Japanese had fired a number of torpedoes at Canberra from the port side, uh, they all missed. In fact, or missed or were uh, voided by the Canberra's crew. Uh, the only ship to fire torpedoes on the starboard side of Canberra was the US destroyer Bagley, which fired four torpedoes at about 1.47. Uh, this was actually just before the Canberra was hit by uh, a torpedo on its side. Friendly fire was the most likely due to a command confusion on board Bagley. Uh, the destroyer did not perform well during the action at all. Uh, the CEO of the nearby destroyer, the Patterson, on the other hand, performed remarkably well and was given awards for his heroism and their effort. So the actual command of each American destroyer varied significantly. Some was pretty appalling and some was fantastic. Uh, in my view, when the USS Bagley torpedoed Canberra, it effectively put that ship out of commission. It was actually that serious. So, yes, you're saying the, uh, all of the Japanese inflicted damage is happening on the port side of, of Canberra. Correct. And then the torpedo strike is on the starboard side or from the south, which could only have come from... From behind where there was one US destroyer. Okay. Peter, um, Admiral Fletcher's uh, withdrawn his carriers. What's his reaction to the, to the battle? Yes, so there was uh, considerable discussion in the three carriers. Um, the WASP was uh, actually capable of night flying and the, uh, the commanding officer of the WASP, uh, uh, Captain Forrest Sherman, he um, 
uh, argued the point to the Admiral that was on his carrier, uh, Admiral Noyes, that um, uh, they should proceed at speed at north, north to the northwest. And he calculated that if they did that for uh, a couple of hours, they could launch a strike and be able to engage the, uh, the, the Japanese. Um, Noyes' view was, um, look, um, Admiral Fletcher is clearly thinking about the picture and let's leave it to him. So um, in the Saratoga, there was the same discussion um, and the, uh, the air commander in Saratoga argued that they should do a strike. Um, Fletcher elected not to do so. Um, there, was a, um, there wasn't a, 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 um, a launch of aircraft till about um, till sunrise, about six o'clock. Um, and that really only went as far as the, um, uh, the anchorage. Um, so there was no airstrike against the re retreating Japanese. But there could have been. Yeah, so there could have been, um, certainly from the WASP. Um, um, that was certainly a feasible thing and it was certainly discussed at the time in the different ships. Uh, it, it probably would have been useful for Noise to prompt um, uh, Fletcher that he had that night launch capability in the, in the, in the shape of the WASP air group. Catherine, it's the next morning, Canberra's out of action but still afloat. Uh, what's going on and, and how did she actually sink in the end? If I could add to what Greg was saying about the friendly fire, um, the actual, there is film testimony by a torpedo man on board Bagley to say that he actually did fire torpedoes in that direction, which would only uh, reinforce what Greg had already said. The ship was dead in the water. Uh, Admiral Turner said, if you can't get under power, um, we have to scuttle the ship. And as best they could, the list was getting, was increasing. So American destroyers were commanded to, after the survivors had been removed onto a USS destroyers, had been, were commanded to fire into the ship. And I believe it took about 263 shells and five torpedoes to actually sink Canberra, which the survivors were quite delighted in their sad sort of way to see that their ship had, had fought to the very end before it sank. So Canberra rests on Iron Bottom Sound, which is the name of the channel now because of so many ships. The, the fleet lost, I believe, about a thousand sailors, which was more than the Marines lost on Guadalcanal campaign. So from the, from the maritime point of view, it was quite a disastrous exercise. So Greg, how did the, um, how did the US react to this you know, quite telling defeat? You know, the, the, the transports had been protected, the Marines were still ashore, but they'd suffered a significant naval defeat. Well, the, the US Navy saw that it actually had to learn the lessons of Savo Island but they really had no time to sit back and think about it. They, they were fighting from that time on. Uh, it was a case of just moving on and continuing to fight. Uh, it was the first in a long line of naval battles that occurred in the Guadalcanal campaign um, over some seven, eight months. The US Navy picked itself up, it dusted itself off, and it prepared for the most savage combat in its history. Uh, it ended up being a long, hard slog. Uh, Admiral Turner 
believed that the US Navy suffered from a fatal lethargy of mind. This was that peacetime mindset. Uh, he thought they had confidence without readiness and a routine acceptance of outworn peacetime standards of conduct. After the battle, many US commanders, both senior and uh, ship commanders, were replaced, and those who took up the fight were those who could lead, those who could train, those who could fight, and those who could win. And the Americans did win at Guadalcanal after that long period. Peter, what was the Australian reaction? Obviously, there's some concern there that perhaps Canberra hadn't done as well as he potentially could have. Uh, yes, so there was a board of inquiry. Um, and then uh, the first naval member, um, Admiral Collins, he also got uh, John Collins, who I guess was probably the premier cruiser captain in the, in the Navy, to also do a, a review. Um, and, uh, and so they looked at the actions of Crutchley and, um, and Getting in particular. They also looked, as um, uh, Catherine indicated, on the material state of, of, um, of Canberra. And there was a range of recommendations that were, were made about the, some of the technical and material aspects of, of the ship. Um, perhaps the, uh, Crutchley was uh, seen as um, uh, having not done um, anything inherently wrong. Um, so he, he came out of it um, better than what you would have anticipated and certainly um, you know, with the benefit of, of, uh, of the many years and looking back in history that um, you would think that you know, he, he may have been uh, removed. Certainly if he was an American admiral he would have been removed I would, would say. But he, he survived to, to lead the Australian squadron um, and with American ships in the, in, uh, the, um, the future um, engagements along the, the New Guinea uh, coast. Um, Collins was quite critical of getting, um, and it's probably worth just talking about this whole readiness uh, issue. So some ships were in first degree of readiness, like at action stations, and they had been in action stations for a number of days, and and so uh, and you had people had um, with hammocks, you know. At, at their gun and, and whatever their action station was. So you had ships like that. You had ships like Canberra and Hobart, which had reverted because people were just so tired, you know, the second degree of readiness where half the crew was on watch, half wasn't. In the case of Canberra, um, what Frank Getting had done is he'd reverted to the second degree of readiness and he, had, um, he was asleep w within, you know, a minute's walk of the, of the bridge. But what Collins said was that the experience in the Mediterranean where you had this issue of having to be ready to counter air, surface and subsurface attack 24 hours a day, seven days a week, was the practice there was to have either the commanding officer or his deputy, the, the executive officer, um, on the bridge at any one time. And that wasn't the case of Canberra and he said that was a... That was a failing in, in Canberra. Um, I think what it, that highlighted was two things. Harold Farncombe, who would, um, another very experienced Australian cruiser captain who would go on to, to command the squadron, um, his point was that the Navy hadn't really come to grips with how do you maintain a degree of readiness, able to respond instantly. They hadn't worked out that as an institution. What was the best model? 
and it would have been up to individual captains to try and work that out. Um, so that was an issue. And also the issue of you needed to better um, disseminate experiences and lessons learned in the different campaigns that the, the, the fleet was involved in around the globe so that people could benefit from that experience. And that was yet to happen. Catherine, how did the, the battle at Savo Island shape the rest of the, uh, the Guadalcanal campaign, which went on for you know, several more months and well into 1943? Um, I, think, I think the actual landing was, was, was certainly very successful. But again, I think we just have to go back to what did we learn from this and how quickly did we learn it? Uh, I just wish that the commanders had taken more responsibility for some of the, the issues. When the survivors returned, they were criticised by the commanding officer of Sydney, Mohood Gold, and told they were incompetent. Now, these people are following orders, and I, I would have liked to crutchly actually read the Board of Inquiry, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Peter, and he said he could not agree with any of the findings. Uh, he actually was promoted. A lot of the cause of the failure of this campaign fell on junior people, and I don't think that was fair. The American who was most criticised was the commander of Chicago, which failed to go uh, ahead. Now, Captain Bode, Howard Bode, uh, he was really treated very poorly, and he's still basically a commander of a ship, but he's still basically a commander within a command. And he finally committed suicide because he couldn't take the strain. So what did we learn uh, from this? I'm not sure. Certainly the Battle of Savo would, go, would not go in our history books as being anything but a failure. So I, th I think perhaps we did learn lessons and we certainly appreciated that. But at that stage, Australian Navy had lost seven warships and it needed to learn very fast. Greg, any final comments on the, on the Battle of Savo Island? Look, I, I'd just like to add to what Catherine was saying there. And that's that, first of all, you have to acknowledge that Guadalcanal campaign was a maritime campaign, and it was probably one of the biggest ones in uh, our region. But it was a campaign of attrition. They were contesting sea control. No one had clear advantages in ships and aircraft, one over the other. And when you're contesting, there are always are large numbers of casualties, large losses of ships. It's, uh, it's that attrition happening. Just the statistics, I think, are interesting. Over 5,000 Allied soldiers, uh, sailors, 5,000 Allied sailors lost their lives at sea during the Guadalcanal campaign. This is compared to 1,700 troops on shore. There were, that's three times the number of people killed at sea than on land, even though the US Marine Corps have Guadalcanal as their shining example. Uh, the Japanese, however, lost 25,000 men, which is five times what the Allies lost, which is amazing. That was at sea, on land, and in the air. You know, When their transports were sunk in November, they lost thousands of guys at sea. Uh, and never got on land. This was during the seven-month campaign. So we just acknowledge that it was actually... That's what happens when you fight an attrition battle. 
Yeah. Peter, some last thoughts here. Yeah, so just on that, I think with the, the loss at the Battle of Savo Island, that really emboldened the Japanese. It also meant that, uh, I mean, later in that afternoon, uh, following the, um, the, the morning where they saw what the losses were, later that day, the amphibious um, ships and, the, and the, the escorting force left, left the Marines to hold the ground, and they did magnificently to do that. But um, as Greg said, it was now this contested um, uh, environment with all these series of battles that went on. If Battle Savo Island had turned out differently, and if the uh, the air cabra had been maintained, it, it was it would have undoubtedly been quite a different different story. Was it the defeat that we needed to have to uh, to shake up the Allied forces? Um, I don't necessarily think it, you could look at it in those terms, but I think that um, when you do look at the Battle of Sabo Island, it was a watershed moment for Australian and American naval interoperability. If you fast forward um, 18 months um, and see what the differences are, the Australian Navy really um, took on board a number of these lessons that had to be learnt. So to give an example, it adopted um, TBS, that talk between ships. Um, it uh, embraced the way that you coordinate ships at sea using voice communications. Um, it changed its procedures to more align with the US Navy rather than expecting US Navy ships to uh, adopt uh, British Australian procedures. So, so it did that, it increased the size of its staff in, in for the, the, uh, the Admiral commanding the, and the, subsequently the Commodore commanding the squadron. So it learnt a lot from the US Navy about how to conduct operations in the Pacific and to the point where it became a completely integrated element in the US 7th Fleet. So individual Australian ships could slot into any task group in, in the American 7th Fleet and operate as effectively as an American ship. And so that was a, a big lesson that was learnt really from the, um, from the defeat at Savo Island. Catherine, any final thoughts on the, on the battle? No, just to agree with what Peter just said, it's, uh, it's, it was a very painful lesson to learn and uh, it's... Unfortunately, war is not a glamorous thing to do and uh, unfortunately too many people pay the price for that. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Sadly, that is all we have time for today. My thanks to Greg, Peter and Catherine for their insights and my thanks to you for joining us. We look forward to your company for the next episode. Bye for now.